So, Ms. Marino, I wanted to begin by talking about your leadership journey because you have broken many glass ceilings throughout your career in public service, you know, serving as the first female Prime Minister of Peru. And toward that point, I wanted to ask you, is that something you thought about often while you were in that role, you know, being the first female Prime Minister for your country? Is that something you thought about as you led? And if so, how do you think it shaped your leadership? Well, um, but frankly, it was quite a experience from my point of view, uh, but it was not the first time that I had exerted, let's say, female leadership in my career. I had so done in my private sector when I extensively worked both here in Peru and the United States and other countries for Procter Gamble, which uh, where I had a career before I left for mm-hmm. public service. So I had, let's say, uh, the skills or the atmosphere or the, or the uh, uh, you know, the whatever it took to get along and exert leadership in those roles in, in, in the private and the business sector. Now, when it came to the public sector, um, mm-hmm. what I found was that, and I found it a, a, a rather amusing at that time, was that most of the men that were engaged in positions that you know, the top dignitaries have never had a woman as a peer, nor a woman, even less, a woman as a boss. And that, I thought, was uh, more difficult for them than it was for me. And uh, and soon uh, I found that uh, I had to, uh, it, it's not that it was uncomfortable for me, it was some, not uncomfortable, it was new for them, you know? So I had to, I had to design a new way I had to make them understand, feel comfortable with me, and accept, you know, uh, the leadership that the role uh, uh, was, uh, you know, designed to, to perform. And it was, and, and we had a good cabinet, and we did well, and, uh, you know, the taxation improved, and we had a, a lot done. And actually, when I joined the prime minister position, I had like I think a 35 percent approval rate. It was low because at the time the president had a very low approval rate. It was kind of a political crisis. And then by the time I left, most uh, polls I had around 30 percent approval rate, which meant it had worked. And uh, and I did the right thing when I accepted. And I have never regretted it. And I don't even regret it until now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you mentioned working in Procter & Gamble, and I understand that you've been working in your law career in corporate law um, for quite some time before you one day kind of took stock of the situation around you and decided that things weren't going in the right direction for the country and they could be better. Um, could you describe kind of that epiphany moment for you and uh, when you decided that you were going to make that transition, that leap into politics? And is there anything you wish you would have known about the world of politics before you jumped into the ring? That's a very good question. Actually, um, um, I, I it was a very hard time. You know, we were kind of touching the bottom of the barrel in this country. We had the highest hyperinflation, one of the highest, you know, in the history of the economic world. You know, and uh, terrorism was rampant. Two-thirds of the country or so were under the flag of Shining Path, which is a horrible kind of post-military uh, group. And uh, most of my family, most of my friends, not all, have left the country. 
Uh, but I do. I did have my job with Procter and so on. Now, but the epiphanic moment I would say was that when I heard this, um, this uh, not, um, actually a novelist, a literary man who abandoned his books and his, and his writing, and later on in life became a Nobel Prize of Literature. Actually, the only Peruvian has been ever awarded that prize. Uh, Mr. Mario Vargas Llosa, so well-known writer. And uh, I had a cold that the thing. I got a cold and then he was going to speak in public. So I couldn't go, to, you know, to the streets like everybody else did. And uh, so I stayed home and uh, I was able to listen to him uh, on TV. And suddenly when you do listen very carefully, I understood that he was bringing in the message that would free our country from the hardship and nightmare of the economic default that we were in and certainly of the insecurity that that terrorist group brought to our lives. And this is when I decided that I wasn't just going to do like St. Francis. I mean, literally leave everything and follow. And uh, sometimes in order to lead, you also have to follow first, and then others will follow you, you know. And this is the the time where I decided it was my time to... to, leave all the comforts that my successful career with Pakistan given me and, uh, and, and, and to do the, the change, the huge change of my life that would uh, change completely the, my life for the, for the rest of whatever has been done uh, of my life because never was my life again uh, the same as it was before. Now, do I regret it? No, I don't. Um, I would probably have a lot more economic comfort should I have uh, stayed in, in the business sector. But today, I think we won. I think, I mean, I, I don't say I won. I think we won because I, I did my leadership role, but there were so many other people, young people, and, and, and so many other people who were ready to follow and to do whatever it was required for them. And today, we have a great country. Of course, we have a lot of problems, like many other countries. But you know, we defeated China Pass forever. We have a safe country to live in. You know, okay, we have criminality, like any other country we have around the world, but not the, the, the horrors that we had to live during those horrible years. And certainly, today, we have a, a country that grows by, a, you know, interesting percentage, I, I think, for all, almost the last uh, 10 years. So... Uh, did I do the right thing? I think I did. Did I? Would I do it again? Now that I know uh, how hard it was, yes, I would. Yes, I would do it again because uh, I, I feel so proud that I was able to change the course of. Uh, I would say change the course of the of the destiny of my country. Right, right, and and you mentioned kind of stepping out of your comfort zone and knowing your life will never be the same and. You know, I think the higher in leadership you ascend, the more problems you're asking for to wake up to every day to try to figure out how to solve. And, you know, on that note, as Prime Minister, at the time that you entered, I imagine there were so many irons on the fire um, and so many issues inbound towards you. How did you triage the issues you wanted to tackle first? What were your central priorities that you thought at that time required your most immediate and vigorous attention? Yeah, I had it very clear that I had to I had to start by the income. We had too little income for a country that has so many social requirements. 
So it was clear to me, and I had been before being a prime minister, the head of the Peruvian IRS and customs. So it was very clear to me what the problems were on the income part of the budget, okay? And so I decided that I was going to go through that, and uh, and I did, and it was a hard time, and it was weeks and months to convince and persuade uh, all the stakeholders that we needed a, a better budget, that we needed a better tax system, that we needed better income, and, uh, and, and that and only that was only going to be able to pay for better security and better education and better health, which we were having at the time. Once I did that, I, I turned around to the other side, which was the modernization of the of the state, which, as you may know, is a heavy problem because bureaucracy tends to grow sometimes without control, and uh, and more than even that, and not be too efficient to produce the social goods that are required for prosperity and for equality. You know, of uh, a safe life and a good life for everybody. So. I had it very clear that I had to go through that way first. And the other thing that I, I thought was a personal thing, perhaps being a woman, it was very clear to me that I had to kind of bring peace to the country. The country was in a political crisis when I arrived, and it was very, very uh, clear to me that I was the person, and the woman that was going to walk into the room and tell everybody, no, calm down. We're going to do it. We're going to do it well, and it's going to be all right. But just calm down, and let's do this. And you know, and sometimes like good mothers do to us. Well, it was as simple as that. And it's funny enough, it worked. And uh, uh, country had been with strikes and riots and this and that, and just just like by magic, suddenly everything disappeared. Everything, everything disappeared, and people would say, uh, "Well, you know, who knows." She, she knows what needs to be done. Let's just trust her. And, uh, and I understood the tremendous impact of credibility and trustworthy, a trustworthy relationship between a politician and the people. And, and I was very respectful with the people, and I was very honest with the people. And I told, you know, I came out and said to the people, the poor people, particularly in the country, I said, look, I don't know that I'll be able to bring you out of poverty, all of you, during the mandate. But one thing I know, let me work. And your children would not be in poverty. That I have very clear. And when you speak to the people and you're honest and then you deliver, then everything starts working out. But I don't know that anybody, uh, you know, it, it was very clear to me. I, I had no problems with that. And, uh, and, um, and so, I mean, uh, it makes me very happy. I don't regret it. It was not easy. It was hard. It took a lot of, I took a lot of pain because, you know, public life brings a lot of pain sometimes to you and sometimes to your family. But uh, first and foremost, it brings a uh, feeling that you have served your country and that you have been able to bring your country out of a tremendous, you have brought your country out of a horrible and tremendous problem. And um, and so once again, even though all the costs that were, were involved, I would do it again. I, I mean, I, I I'm not trying to say I would be a prime minister again today, but I'm trying to say I would I I would do the effort. I would leave the comfort of my of my, of my comfort zone in the private business sector, and uh, and I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't doubt to to be able to serve my country again. 
it's, 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 you know, under the circumstances when it happens. No? Right, right. That's fantastic. So it's clear that you entered with a clear set of priorities. And, you know, I imagine as a leader, one of the toughest parts of the job is probably making the right call at a critical juncture when the stakes are so high. And so looking back, do you have any regrets on your time in office? Is there kind of any specific issue you wish you would have spent more time on or tackled in a different way? Well, you know, after I was a prime minister, I went to Washington to work for several years, and then the Congress elected me to a position that uh, is the ombudsman position. I was the national ombudsman elected by two-thirds of Congress, which uh, is kind of a chief justice, kind of an autonomous constitutional uh, position. And for the next year, I was able to walk around the poor people of my country. And and uh, one thing that I I I regretted is that I fought so hard against poverty, but I fought it more by for economic reasons. I would do it again uh, after being an ombudsman, not only for economic reasons, but because of the feelings that I developed in my own in my own uh, life towards the pain and the despair that it means to be a poor person today in the modern world. How uh, abandoned you feel, how you uh, feel that people don't care what's going on, how you are unable to give your children or your parents the kind of dignified or, or healthy life that they deserve to have because you love them. And 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 this is, has to do with money, but it has to do also with your your compassion, with your intelligence, but also with the with how you put your heart into your work. Mm-hmm. And that's an experience that I didn't have when I was a prime minister. You know, I had it after. And so, if you ask me that question, that's probably the only not regret, but the only uh, thing that I I had like a pending. In my and in line, no, and and my life. Although I mean, I I think we we were very successful uh, cabinet, and uh, I uh, I think that uh, people really need to know that you care for them, that you work for them, and that um and that uh, you're somebody that really in touch with their souls, their pains, and their and their desires, no. That's 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 my view now. Hmm? Right, right. I think I think that's terrific. And so, you know, what can we do as a society? Because you know, there's still there's huge gender-based disparities in leadership and in these high positions and leadership. And what do you what do you think we can kind of do? What sort of measures can we implement in society to help more women ascend to these power positions? How can we help more women have the kind of leadership trajectory that you've had? So I don't think there are like magic formula, but I think there are two things at least that are basic and absolutely indispensable. One is you need to participate. You need to be able to understand that you may be so successful and you may have so many things, but at one time you need to leave your comfort zone and you need to participate and walk into public life knowing that it's going to, you know, all the problems that it's going to have, but there's no way you're going to push the gender base unless you're there. Every institution that I met in my life, when I arrived, there was only one token woman at the highest level. By the time I left, it was 50-50. Because it took a woman to understand and to know exactly what was going on. 
And that was number one. So you need to participate and you need to lead with action. You need to you need to look and then you gotta convince women that they are perfectly able to do exactly the same roles and perhaps even better than men in many cases. And 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 uh, I think that there is no way other than than that. And um just uh, just an example, no, I mean in my country, for example, you have very few women that are majors, you know. And what happens is once they get attacked publicly, women tend to withdraw and they don't want to participate anymore. And that's a big disadvantage, I think, uh, that, 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 this, that uh, this gender difference still happens. Uh, I don't know of any other way that you have women in those positions and you need to ask and push the agenda and you need to confront. And the other thing that you need to do is build alliances, build coalitions. It's going to take not only women, but men that are absolutely convinced that you are right, that economy and prosperity and development are, a, a, you know, achieved by the work of both men and women. There are a lot of men that will absolutely agree with you in all your gender uh, agenda. So you need to find this man, you need to deal with them coalitions, and you need to be able to work with them so you both will push for the agenda.